Brown, Jack Hirschman, Nina Serrano, uh, Jorge Argueta, Neely Cherkovsky, and my wife Adele and me, and lots of others. That's this Sunday, 2 p.m. at Cafe La Boheme, 3318 24th Street in San Francisco. I'll be back in a week with more from Fighting Words. Thank you, Erica Bridgman. Thanks for listening. Marxist economist Richard Wolff provides immediate clarity and depth with a tasty rye edge. KPFA is delighted to present Richard with his new reliably discerning talk on February 10th, Wednesday evening, 730 at Berkeley's First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way. This KPFA benefit is wheelchair accessible. Richard will be hosted by Sabrina Jacobs, whose unique show, A Rude Awakening, airs Monday afternoons on KPFA. Advanced tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and at supporting independent bookstores. For this rye evening with a great economist, cutting through the bull fruit, offering a positive outlook, February 10th. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.31. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. My guests today are no strangers to KPFA, Amina Hassan and James McWilliams. Amina Hassan is a major radio documentarian who produced the historic on-the-ground recordings of the U.S. invasion of the island of Grenada in 1983, which was broadcast here on KPFA as it was happening. She also won a prize for her 13-part NPR series on how race, class, and gender shape American sports. Amina Hassan has recently written a book on the life of civil rights attorney Lauren Miller. Here to discuss the book with us is James McWilliams, civil rights attorney and activist who currently works as an advocate for mental health patients and is a member of the Bukani Muetu Chorus, often reciting and commenting on the works of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Jim McWilliams has visited our airwaves with his first-hand stories from the civil rights movement that he also shares with local schoolchildren. I have Amina Hassan on the phone in Los Angeles, and Jim and I are here in the studio. Welcome, Amina Hassan, author of Lauren Miller, civil rights attorney and journalist. Well, I'm so honored that you've invited me to talk about the Lauren Miller civil rights attorney biography. It's just such a pleasure to, to do anything for KPFA. Well, we're so excited to have you. And welcome to you, Jim McWilliams. And thank you, Nina, for inviting me. I have enjoyed your programs in the past and will continue in the future. Well, always a pleasure to have you here. Amina Hassan, what brought you to write Lauren Miller, civil rights attorney and journalist? And Jim, what attracted you to the book? Let's begin with Amina. Well, the book of Lauren Miller's life has its origins in my growing up in Los Angeles. How was that? Well, as a child, I knew his name. My father used to be a mail carrier, 
And one day, he and two white male carriers went into uh, the Kansas City Steakhouse in Los Angeles. And they served the two white male ones, but they didn't serve my father. And my father got up, and all three of them left. And through my mother, who knew Lauren Miller's wife, Juanita Miller, who was a social worker, my father got Lauren Miller's name. And although the case never went to court, all three of them received a settlement of like a hundred, that's sort of a standard at the time, a hundred dollars each for refusing to serve him. So that's kind of what got, got me going. And then luckily, when I was considering writing the book, I went to the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, that's next to Pasadena. And I looked up on the very day that the curator went down to see the papers that they had acquired. And he hadn't even looked in there yet. And they let me hang out for about three or four hours going through these dusty boxes. And when I saw what I saw, I said, oh, I'm going to do this book. And that was sort of um, how that came about. And so how many years was that process? About 2006. And then I had to sort of wait because it took a year for them to catalog it because it wasn't cataloged. And then I came back and essentially... I think I finished in like 2012, basically, but it was on and off. I wasn't using just entirely the Huntington Library. I used the National Archives and the Library of Congress, and then I did interviews with people who had known him. So I would say, in a sense, it might have taken five years if you sort of add up the months. But I was lucky with that, too, because the series editor of the University of Oklahoma Press, Race and Culture in the American West, is a professor at the University of Washington, Quintard Taylor. He's sort of like the guy in history of blacks in the West. And he is a series editor, and I had been in a conversation with him. And when I was looking for a publisher, I said, well, do you know where I could submit it? And he says, well, don't you know I'm a series editor for the University of Oklahoma Press? I said, well, no, he says. Let's just work on this together. And so that's how it came about. So it was really easy in that sense. And so I didn't really have to shop it around. I've been very pleased with them. So this book was destined to be. So, Jim, what attracted you to the book? Well, what really fascinated me with this book is that Lauren Miller's life story follows the pattern that I like to use when I'm talking to elementary school kids in Oakland and other places that someone can come from humble beginnings, dirt poor, and get themselves in a position to improve the lives of themselves and their fellow man. And Lauren Miller fit that to a T, and those are the qualities that I admire. And then when I found that he also got into the inequality of distribution of resources in this country, something that I'm concerned about, and his interest in holding police departments accountable. These are all things that we are concerned with right now. And when he said things like an informed and organized citizenry is the best way to change things, that hit home to me. His life ended in the late 60s, is that right? Yes. 1967. Yes. 1967, and yet his analysis seems to apply for today, or maybe even more so today than in 1967. Absolutely. The uh, positions that he held, just imagine, coming out of a humble background, his father was a slave, and he's able to identify with the Japanese internment problem and wants to try and deal with that. 
And then he gets involved with these monumentally great cases like Shirley v. Kramer that ended restrictive covenants. The man was there for the people. So, Jim, you have earmarked certain parts of the book that you felt were poetic. And since this program is poet to poet, maybe you could share some of those. Yes. The one that he wrote after he learned that his older brother, Claude Miller, had died was something that I thought I'd like to share. To my brother dying in a hospital, while death sits there at your side, plucking with eagle fingers at your bed to feed the crimson pool by your bed, I will frequent my usual hunts. But my mind is not there with you, nor yet here on these familiar things. It has fled back eagerly to recall those hours your numbered brain has forever forgot. When the first bird called the spring, or the smell of the sweet sweat of horses, when we raced to unharness them at noontime. These things are interwoven in my memory. Like a crimson thread, they are woven into the very pattern of the poverty by which our lives were cut. For I shall grieve secretly a while and suffer the white-hot touch of sorrow in my heart. Then I shall remember again, and your memory will be the strong scent of courage in my nostrils, and a sinews of steel for my arm, and a cloak of mail, and a sword for my hand. Together we shall renew our war with poverty. You just heard Jim McWilliams reading a poem by Lauren Miller, from the book Lauren Miller, Civil Rights Attorney and Journalist by Amina Hassan. That is a beautiful poem. I'm not sure if that poem had ever been published until the biography that I've written. And did you find it among those papers? Oh, yes. The best part of those papers were the letters that he had. When he went to the Soviet Union in 1932 with the writer Langston Hughes and 20 other African Americans to make a film, about black life in America. There was these letters that he wrote to his fiancée, because when he became, came back, and in 1933, he married Juanita Ellsworth. And they're just so funny. He had this great sense of humor. And the other thing that I could pull from, because the letters were so important, he went to live in New York City in 1935, right after what's considered, I think, the first riot of Harlem. And he worked for the, the New Masses, the Progressive New Masses. And he wrote letters to his wife at this time. And so you get all of this and you get people and how he's laughing at things and, and his sort of tongue-in-cheek. He laughs about his cousin. His cousin is getting married. He says, oh, we're, you have to, he's telling his wife, he says, you, you have to get them out by the time I come back to California because I can't ha handle any of that baby talk they keep doing. And so he was just very upfront about things. He was the kind of guy who I learned in interviews 
They had card parties. They were drinking. That kind of a really good feeling. And when Langston Hughes came to town, he stayed with them and other people. And he was a friend of Chester Himes, the writer. And so in the Huntington, it's these wonderful letters and the letters between Miller and Langston Hughes. So it must have been hard to make your selections with such a rich treasure there. In that sense, yes, but it gave me a sense of who he is because some of the other things are letters from Thurgood Marshall to him or back, and and that's more business. You pick up some sort of funny things. Everyone always called him cuz, cousin, and mainly I think because he co-founded the Los Angeles Sentinel Black Newspaper, which is still being published today. That's something I was going to ask you to talk about, that he not only was in the law but owned and ran a newspaper. Right. He worked for the California Eagle when he first came to California. Black paper. It was started, I think, in the 1890s. And he was working there in the 1930, up till 33, I believe. And then he and his cousin, Leon Washington, founded the Los Angeles Sentinel, which is now reaches 120,000 people in Los Angeles, the black newspaper. And he later, in 1951, bought the California Eagle, the one he had earlier worked one of the other parallels that I chuckled at when I saw it was his connection with Malcolm X. When Nina and McWilliams, my wife, and I were students at the University of Wisconsin, we set up a civil rights northern support group in 1960, and we were able to get an organization that had a budget, the Human Rights Committee. And with that budget, we brought Malcolm X and W.B. Du Bois to the campus. Oh. Oh, my goodness. And we brought about 15 students who had sat in at the lunch counters and housed them in the fraternity and sorority houses so that these people could get firsthand information from someone who was willing to risk their lives, integrate a public facility. And this organization grew from the three of us to several hundred because we opened it up to faculty members on campus, off campus, vegetarians, communists, anybody. And so it grew to about a 1,000 people. And we ended up having a major march on the Capitol to uh, remember Brown versus Board of Education, the case that Thurgood and Lauren Miller worked on. And it's very interesting about the Brown v. Board of Education. Lauren didn't argue the Brown case in court, but he wrote most of the briefs. There were several other attorneys who were involved in writing the briefs, but when I went back and sort of counted, he had done more. And the very interesting thing is, is when the 50th and 60th anniversary celebrations of Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, Miller isn't even mentioned. Find that co that collective loss of memory a, a, a true travesty. Because very, very he was always, yeah, he was always called on before his writing because when. Quote after quote, people who I, you know, I would see in the newspaper article, and they always talked about how brilliant he was. And it was noted when he was really young, and this is very interesting. When his family moved from Nebraska, where he was born, to Kansas, he was about 11 years old, and he didn't like the school, the new school he had gone to. It was the first time he went to a so-called colored school. His father was very angry about him having to be sent there. He wrote to his school teacher back in Nebraska, his white school teacher, and he was complaining. And the letter that's in the Huntington Library, her response was, don't let that bother you, Lauren. Uh, just do your heart. Just do your best. Work real hard. And then she says something. This is 1914. Then she says something amazing. One day, Lauren, you might be the president of the United States. And if you're not the president of the United States, you're going to be someone really important and do important things. 
And I'm saying, like, what? 1914, a white woman is telling this black boy he can, he can aspire to be the president? And I see that as amazing, but it's also recognizing how brilliant he was. People knew he was smart. Yes. And, yes. and he, I mean, he basically taught himself how to read. His brother went to school before him, and he was just trying, he would grab those books as soon as they got home, and he would try to, uh, break, break it down so he could understand. And I think he actually learned to read before his brother did, who went to school. Well, the famous Shelley v. Kramer case was before the Supreme Court, I think, when Thurgood Marshall spoke at my graduation from Talladega College in 1954. And he stayed around after the uh, talk to uh, spend time with some of us students. And we knew that he and Lauren Miller had their fingers crossed about how that decision might turn out. And it came out better than they could have expected where they found the restrictive covenants to be unconstitutional. It was a major case. But I found some parallels with my own background and his. The uh, desire to try and make this system more equitable in the way it distributes its resources was something that we both cared a lot about. And I think my reasoning for getting into that came out of my mother's belief that things should be fair. And that notion of fairness allowed me to organize a, a Birmingham delivery strike against the newspaper because of the way they were discriminating against us. Oh, blacks. tell us that story. Well, I had to leave the segregated part of my town and walk through the divide area of white businesses and get to the place where the newspapers would be distributed. And every day the black newsboys would have to unload the trucks of the heavy, heavy newspapers while the white newspaper boys were inside playing, having fun. And one hot, hot day, as I started walking toward the distribution place, I started saying to myself, this is unfair. As I looked at what looked like a mountain of newspapers waiting for us to unload. And before I knew it, I was saying it out loud. And the other black newsboy said, what the hell we can do? This is the way it's been all the time. And I said, let's leave them there. And we left and did not go back the next day or the next day or the next day. No black families got any newspapers for about two weeks. That got the attention of the white shirt tie owners of the paper in Birmingham proper. And they wanted to know what could be done. They uh, arranged a meeting with the black minister to discuss this. We were there, our parents were there, and they asked, what would it take to get these boys to go back? The preacher knew nothing about why we had done it, turned to the parents. The parents didn't know why we had done it. And all eyes turned to me, and I said, everybody should unload the trucks. Nobody should be spared. And to my surprise and everybody else's surprise, the white shirt tie owners of the paper said to the manager, Mr. Morris, starting tomorrow, that's the way it's going to be. Everybody unloads the truck. Wow. It was integrated. I was about 13 years old at the time, I think. And that led you into the law. <laughs> it led me to know that fairness is something to be taken seriously. Whether it's a larger person beating up a, a smaller person, whether it's a man beating up a woman, whether someone is being denied their rights because of their gender. But it also laid the foundation so that when I got to Talladega College and was exposed to the Jewish refugee scholars from Europe, and Fritz Poppenheim started talking about their 
is a reason why there is inequality in the distribution of resources. It's because we have a capitalist system that thrives on that. And that uh, hit home to me being an extension of my fairness notion. And, of course, before I left school, I had started saying, maybe we can't reform this thing. Maybe it's impossible to reform it so that it will distribute more equitably. Then what do we do? Wow. Was that a point that Lauren Miller ever came to, Amina? I think so, because in the 60s, he wrote an article for The Nation. I don't remember the entire title, but it's, it's again, Farewell to Liberals. And he's basically saying, we can do this on our own. We're fed up. And uh, thank you for helping us to get this far in terms of uh, equal justice and rights. But we can handle this ourselves. And I think that kind of rolls right into the Black Lives Matter. It's time to chart this whole thing again because with all of these killings of these black men and women, that nothing has changed. It's just that people uh, are recording it and showing the world. They didn't believe it with the Rodney King thing, right? These why white people didn't. But here's the evidence, and it's over and over, and that hasn't changed. But... Miller was committed to to fairness. In fact, there's one thing he sort of says about uh, we shall have to make democracy work for every American, or in the last analysis, we shall not be able to preserve it for any American. And he believed in in uh, the 14th Amendment. He believed that he was against all discrimination, not just racial or religious, but he said any discrimination he was against. I think you should mention, too, how he sort of predicted if things didn't change, we could have a Watts, and we did have a Watts. When he handled the 14 black Muslims who were in a shootout, and one, six were wounded and one was killed, the shootout was in 62, and he went to court in 63. Well, he predicted earlier, around that time, that there would be some type of explosion, and in 1965 was the Watts explosion. And he sort of credited for making it public at the time because he saw what was coming, of constantly pushing people down, uh, even though they overturned the racial housing uh, covenants, and but zones still exist. And he was um, he was he supported young people at that time, uh, the Freedom Now movement. He wrote some articles about that. He he, he might not have ever said black people. You know, he still used Negro, but his heart was for anything that would challenge this country to make improvement for not just black people but for everyone because he fought for Mexican Americans, he fought for 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 Japanese Americans as well as African Americans. And so um he wasn't satisfied with just some good things, some better things for black people. He wanted everyone to have a better life and, and, and greater opportunities. So, Amina, how can people get this book, Lauren Miller, Civil Rights Attorney and Journalist? Well, the publisher, you can certainly contact the University of Oklahoma Press. They're listed. But also you can find it online at the major places that one finds books online. It's an e-book, too. It's easily gotten. You just Google and there it pops up. So thank you very much, Amina Hassan, author of Lauren Miller, civil rights attorney and journalist. And thank you, Jim McWilliams, avid reader, civil rights activist, advocate for mental health patients, 
and dear friend. Thank you both. Thank you, Nina. Oh, I'm just so honored. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Amina. Okay, thank you. of the Latino community dimmed and passed. Mama Coatl, Silvia Pada, the border crossing goddess, took the mission district by storm when she arrived 15 years ago as an undocumented single mother. Born in the Sonoran Desert from the Yaqui people, she developed her spiritual healing and intellectual capacities, graduating from San Francisco's New College of California with two graduate degrees, focusing on women's studies and spirituality. In 2006, she introduced the celebration of the UN-mandated Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls to San Francisco. Surprised that U.S. women were not rallying to the cause, she quickly organized a few of her friends to hold an impromptu rally at the 16th and Mission Bard Station. Over the years, she expanded her efforts, and the event was soon held on the steps of San Francisco City Hall. By the eighth year, she received a commendation from the city for her work on behalf of women, swallowing her fears to face the city supervisors to receive the award. She worried that she might be deported for being undocumented. But it was Mama Coatl's stature as an artist, or artivist as she called it, that made her so beloved to the community. She was the poet and the songbird, accompanied by her harana, always raising relevant issues, cultural event after event. Sylvia never backed off calling out racism, misogyny, economic injustice, and deportations without a thought to her own vulnerable situation. She helped spread indigenous spirituality and held many healing workshops. Luna Press published her book of short poems, Mikasa. Silvia Parra raised the bar of feminist thinking through her work. I didn't mention her physical beauty, her long hair and ingenious outfits, performance after performance at the Red Poppy Art House, the Mission Cultural Center, Dance Mission, the Brava Theater, La Peña in Berkeley, and La Peña del Sur and other community venues. Her music DVDs have been broadcast in local and international media. Mama Coat's charisma helped organize rallies and marches, sometimes within hours of the local or international crisis. There will be many memorials honoring Mama Coatl, including one on Sunday, January 24, 2016, at 3 p.m. at the Brava on York Street in San Francisco. Comida es el arma perfecta, dominio absoluto de la población y nosotros comemos veneno, comemos veneno. Es política del Estado derramar sangre es 
de mujer Generar hambre en el mundo Y así ejercer su poder Comemos veneno Grains are monopolized by transnational corporations, transgenic aberrations, morbid obsessions, loved hip-hop political voices in this land kevin has profound words for all of us his new book is the education of kevin powell a boy's journey into manhood eve ensler calls it a raw deeply painful account of a life born of poverty racism abandonment and complicated love as much about a mother as about her son unforgettable kevin powell gives fresh testimony to the power of the soul to heal he'll be at first congregational church in oakland 2501 harrison on tuesday evening january 26th at 7:30. there's free parking and wheelchair access at this kpfa benefit dvd will host advanced tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores please find more information on kpfa.org for january 